0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Hey. Episode 3: we. the podcast. In the Superbeam America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Wednesday, March 31st, 2021, people. And how about this? How appropriate? The final day of March. We officially have ourselves a Final Four. That's right, for the first time in two years. Last Final Four we had feels like a lifetime ago. Virginia, Texas Tech, Auburn, yes, Auburn, and Michigan State were our last Final Four. Now we have the Final Four that I know all of you had in your brackets when you filled out your pool a few weeks ago. That's right, Gonzaga, Baylor, Houston, UCLA, that's right, it's insanity in the streets, insanity in these college basketball streets. The final four that nobody could have possibly predicted is here, and we are gonna completely break it down. Next 25, 30, 40 minutes, however long I go, we are just going to talk about this Elite Eight and, of course, what it means for the Final Four. We will talk about all four of these teams, incredible stories in their own right. UCLA, of course, coming out of the first four game to make a Final Four. Unbelievable story there. Gonzaga still amazed by what they continue to do. Uh, Baylor, I I think what Baylor has done is incredible this year. Basically, a team that was built for last year was ready for a Final Four run last year doesn't work, comes back, Final Four or bust in 2021, and they're here. And of course, Houston making its first Final Four since 1984. So, so many great storylines. I will tell you this as well. I was gonna do some Transfer Portal stuff on the back end, but I have a feeling this episode is going to go long. So what we will do, we will hit on the two games that were on Tuesday night, take a quick break, do the two games that were on Monday night. If you want Transfer Portal stuff, I did do a segment on Kellen Grady committing to Kentucky that is on the YouTube channel. You can check it out there. I will do more Transfer Portal stuff on a Friday episode uh, as well as a Final Four preview. But today it is all about the Elite Eight. It is all about those UCLA Bruins. Eight clap I am recording right after that UCLA win. Uh, And if I'm fired up, it's because I've had like 10 cups of coffee it is now about 2 a.m. Eastern time, but we keep on rolling on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Speaking of which, before we get started, please make sure that you're subscribed. The, uh, iTunes, the iTunes. That's how that, that's how wired I am. I just said the iTunes. iTunes. The Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android Podcast Addict app, is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. So many of you have done that. And thank you all so much for your support. Uh, And make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com and of course as I said a minute ago find the YouTube channel for extra stuff that I don't always get into on this show as an example did a segment on Kellen Grady committing to Kentucky promise I will talk about that on Friday's episode but today is all about the Elite Eight with the Final Four now set. We will get into those games in a minute, but before we do, I do want to welcome back an incredible sponsor that has been with us all March long, a company, a product, a website that I love, and that is PixWise. PixWise is the number one home of free sports betting picks. You can find the who, how, and why behind every pick for every sport, every game, every day, all for free, all at PixWise.com. Throughout March, and we are coming to an end, but it's not too late. Go to PicksWise, it is running a free. College basketball handicapping contest featuring some of the best experts in the game. Again, get free daily picks and analysis from the likes of John Rothstein, Rashad Phillips, and more. Head over to PicksWise.com now to see which expert is hot as they battle it out for a winner-takes-all $10,000 cash prize. Make your next bet better at PicksWise. Go to PicksWise.com for gambling analysis, free analysis, expert opinions on this March Madness. Speaking of March Madness, we have a Final Four. And with that said, people, there is no more time to waste. And let's get into it. Four games, two nights, Monday, Tuesday night. It was different, but it was fun. I would, by the way, actually love your feedback on the Monday, Tuesday night Elite Eight games. I personally enjoyed it. Now, I am not someone that necessarily has to get up Uh, first thing in the morning. I'm not on the East Coast. I don't have to get up for work. I'm not staying up till midnight watching these Elite Eight games. But be curious for your take on these Elite Eight games on Monday and Tuesday. We will get into all of them. We will start with the Tuesday night games. I will get to Gonzaga momentarily because the Zags rolled. But to me, the story of the Elite Eight and the story of this NCAA tournament, how about that East region? Think about the East region from this perspective, people. The East region, when, when we filled out our brackets three weeks ago, I think we all kind of felt good about three of the four regions. We felt good about the West. I think everybody had Gonzaga in the West. If you didn't, shout out to you for being creative and different. The South, I think most people had Baylor, maybe you had Arkansas, Ohio State, whatever. The Midwest, you had probably either Illinois or Houston. Basically, everybody had those three teams. But then there was the East. And the East, I talked about a lot on this show, is like, I have no idea what to make of this East region. And some of us had Michigan as the number one seed advancing to the Final Four. Some of you had Alabama as the number two seed. A lot of people had Alabama as the number two seed. Many of you had Texas as the three seed. I had Texas as the three seed. Shout out Shaka Smart. Could not have seen that one coming. Uh, And of course, the four seed was Florida State. But the East region was kind of the one that we were like, I don't really know what to make of this, and I feel like just about anybody could win this region. Well, sure enough, fast forward two weeks, some of you picked Michigan, some of you picked Florida State, some of you picked Bama, some of you were like me and picked Texas, and then completely out of nowhere, how about our buddy Michael, Walter, Mick, Cronin, and the UCLA Bruins, the 11 seed. Not only were they the 11 seed, they were one of two 11 seeds in that region, one of the final two teams into the NCAA tournament where they played Michigan State in a first four game and completely out of nowhere, they have advanced to go to the final four. This is Uh, And we'll get into it in a minute, but it is an incredible story. I don't want to call it improbable. I don't want to call it a Cinderella deal because it is not the same as a George Mason or a VCU or a Wichita State or whatever, but it is pretty improbable. And what I will first start by saying is that, one, let's just start right off the top, giving credit to UCLA, giving credit to Mick Cronin, giving credit to his players for coming out and being completely prepared for these last couple games. Yes, they struggled to even get out of the opening round of the NCAA tournament uh, two Thursdays ago, but... They played the number two seed in this region, Alabama, on Sunday. And if you watch that game, there was no doubt that they were the better team. Alabama, yes, they missed some foul shots, but Alabama didn't lose that game because of a missed foul shot or two. UCLA was the better team in that game. And I think if you watch... Tuesday night's Elite Eight game between Michigan and UCLA, you kind of came away saying, look, Michigan was the Big Ten regular season champs, they were awesome all season, but let's call a spade a spade, UCLA was the better team. UCLA deserved to win Mick Cronin going to his first Final Four, which we will get into in a minute, but as I said, this is one of the crazier stories that I can ever remember uh, in an NCAA tournament, and it's weird because this is both kind of an improbable run to the Final Four, and it is also kind of like not an improbable run at all, right? And the reason it's not an improbable run is because we are in fact talking about UCLA, the school with the most national championships in the history of college basketball, and it's not as though like this is some plucky underdog out of nowhere story, Like, they were the Pac-12 regular, or Pac-12 preseason favorites. They were a preseason top 25 team. And as I've told you many times, like, this is a team that if you just went up and down the roster and looked at recruiting rankings, I think you could genuinely argue, and I don't even think it would be an argument, it'd be kind of a factual conversation, they were probably one of the most highly ranked teams coming into this NCAA tournament. I know I said it a million times. Johnny Juzang, former top 30 recruit, started his career at Kentucky. Cody Riley, top 40 recruit, picked UCLA over Kansas. Uh, Tiger Campbell, top 50 recruit, top 70 recruit, whatever it was, picked UCLA over a bunch of Big 12 schools. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Jules Bernard, top 50 recruit, on and on and on and on and on. So in many ways, this should not be considered improbable. This was the preseason Pac-12 favorite. They were a top 25 team, they were one shot away from winning the Pac-12 regular season last year, and so again, in many ways, this should not be considered a surprise. Not to mention, oh by the way, the fact that they started this year twelve and two overall. Where it gets surprising, though, where it gets weird, though, is yes, they started twelve and two overall. Here's the thing: it's everything that happened after that, which is which is the stuff that we have to talk about. While they started twelve and two, they finished just 6-7 and in their final 13 games. They took some bad losses. Now, some of it was for reasons that were explainable. Their best player, Chris Smith, who frankly probably could have gone to the NBA after last year, had there not been a pandemic, he might have been gone anyway. He goes down with a knee injury. A second starter, Jalen Hill, leaves the team for personal reasons, And, oh, by the way, the Pac-12, again, for the millionth time, is way better than we thought it was. It was funny. I saw a tweet on uh, Tuesday night after UCLA advanced. Oh, my goodness. Have we ever seen a team lose their last four regular season games and make the Final Four? And it's like, yeah, UCLA did lose their last four regular season games, but look who they lost to. They lost to Colorado. They lost to Oregon in a game that I watched, and it was really close right until the final possession or two. They lose on, in the final regular season game to UCA, USC on a buzzer beater. Not sure if you saw. USC's pretty good. And then they lost to Oregon State in the Pac-12 tournament. And so you look at those final four losses, and you see a team that lost to four teams that ended up not only making the NCAA tournament, but all four made the round of 32. Three made the Sweet 16. Two made the Elite Eight. Uh, and UCLA is now headed to the final four. It still doesn't make it any less improbable though for the reason that I said. This is a team that while I thought they were good all year, while we as uh, Aaron Torres podcast community, I remember talking about them when the first AP poll came out. Like we all thought that they had the potential. But like I said, they were 18 and nine at one point. They were one of the last teams into the NCAA tournament. And I can't deny, I did not see this coming. This was a team that was down at halftime to Michigan State in the first four game of the NCAA tournament, and so yes, this is conceivable. Even though it's the brand of UCLA, even though they have great players, even though they were the Pac-12 preseason favorite, even though they were 12 and two at one point, this is still inconceivable as a team that was down at halftime in a first four game to Michigan State. And could have easily lost that game. And who knows where Michigan State would be at at this point. Who knows where anybody would be at this point. Because again, Texas lost to Abilene Christian. Maybe Abilene Christian makes a Sweet 16. Maybe uh, Alabama is in the Elite Eight playing Michigan. Maybe Alabama's going to the Final Four. Maybe Michigan's going to the Final Four. But the fact remains that it is in fact our buddy, friend of the Aaron Torres Podcast, Michael Walter, Mick Cronin, who is going to the Final Four, baby, his first in his career. And so really quickly, I do want to transition to Mick Cronin because I don't want to make it all about Mick Cronin. It's about the dudes on the court. It's about the difference makers. And we're going to talk about Johnny Juzang and some of these guys momentarily. But how about our boy Mick Cronin? Because I'll tell you this, man. Like sometimes we all cover sports. And I know you guys love different sports. And you're not all college basketball diehards like I am. But there are sometimes that there are narratives in sports that just don't make sense. And like, you're just happy when it comes to an end, right? Like like Peyton, I'll, I'll give you an example. We got a lot of Tennessee fans that listen to this show. I don't know if you guys checked out after Tennessee lost in the first round of the NCAA tournament. If you did, no big deal. You lost to a good Oregon State team, whatever. But there's a lot of Tennessee fans that have defended Peyton Manning for years. But there was time in Peyton Manning's career where it's like, oh, he can't win the big one. He can't beat Tom Brady. And it's like that's idiotic. Like he's a really good player. He just happens to be running into really good other players. And so why do I bring it up? It's because of the fact that Mick Cronin kind of had that reputation in college basketball. He was deemed the guy that quote unquote always choked in the NCAA tournament. This was a guy that at Cincinnati made the NCAA tournament for nine straight seasons and only made one Sweet 16, zero lead eights, zero Final Fours, and of course, if you don't make a Final Four, you can't win a national championship, but he was deemed like, oh my goodness, he can't win the big one. And like, I'm not saying there weren't moments in time where he his teams underachieved or didn't do what was expected of them he was for the record on the wrong side of the biggest comeback in the history of the NCAA tournament shout out Eric Musselman in Arkansas who we'll get to in a minute uh, Eric Musselman was at Nevada at the time they overcame a 22 point deficit in the second half to beat UCLA or beat Cincinnati and Mick Cronin but I bring it up because I never bought the notion that like Mick some terrible coach and I do think this this NCAA tournament run is vindication for him this is a guy that again nine straight NCAA tournaments can't get over the hump at Cincinnati? Well, maybe instead of talking about how he can't win big at Cincinnati, we should be talking about the fact that he took freaking Cincinnati from freaking the AAC to nine straight NCAA tournaments, right? It's kind of like the Mark Few conversation at Gonzaga, which we'll get into another one in a minute. Like, Instead of trying to tear down Gonzaga, how about the fact they keep making the Final Four, they keep or they keep making the NCAA Tournament, they keep making the Sweet 16, they keep knocking on the door of the Final Four, eventually they're going to knock down the door and win the National Championship. And I know I'm going all over the place here, forgive me again, but it's kind of the same with Mick Cronin. It's like, rather than talking about how terrible he was at Cincinnati, how he couldn't win the big one, how he couldn't get over the hump, Maybe he was the reason that Cincinnati was even in the NCAA tournament in the first place. By the way, what has happened to Cincinnati since he left? Uh, The program's been a complete dumpster fire. Not sure if you've been paying attention, but their current coach, John Brannon, is under investigation because uh, the program is a mess. They went 12 and 11 this year, finished fifth in the conference. Not sure if you heard, didn't make the NCAA tournament this year, didn't make the NCAA tournament last year. And the program hasn't been the same since Mick Cronin left. And on top of that, he completely flipped the UCLA program the second that he got there. Remember, this was a program that in Steve Alford's last year, they bottomed out. They did not make the NCAA tournament. They did not finish with a winning record. And Steve Alford was fired. And Mick Cronin gets there. And in year one, he takes a team that finished in ninth place in the Pac-12 the year before. They are a shot away from winning the Pac-12. They went 12-9 in his first year, but here's the catch with that. Uh, not 12-9, excuse me. They went 19-12. I take that back. Uh, but they were 8-9 and nine at one point, and then go 9-3 and uh, three down the stretch or whatever it was to, to put themselves in position and nearly win the Pac-12. So he does that in year one. In year two, he already has UCLA in the top 25 as a preseason Pac-12 favorite, and now, despite injuries, despite suspensions, despite players leaving the team, he has them going to the Final Four. And so again, look at the totality of what he did. Oh, he couldn't get over the hump at Cincinnati. Or maybe he was the reason Cincinnati was even at the level that they were. The program has bottomed out without him. And oh, by the way, he now has UCLA in its first Final Four since 2008. In addition to Mick Cronin, I want to give credit to a few other people. I want to do something that I, is extremely unpopular and something that I don't do often on this show. I want to give credit to Steve Alford. I've crushed Steve Alford. I crushed Steve Alford when he was at UCLA. I didn't think that he was the guy that should have been hired at Nevada and given a 10-year contract, by the way. But Steve Alford recruited most of these players on this current team. Steve Alford and his previous staff, Dwayne Broussard, David Grace, guys like that. They they were the guys that brought in Cody Riley, Tiger Campbell, Jules Bernard, David Singleton, all the guys that you saw on the court on uh, Monday night or Tuesday night, excuse me, with the exception of Johnny Juzang. So give, give give that previous staff credit because I do think that when a team makes a run like this, you do have to give credit to the previous staff. No different than, oh, by the way, if Alabama was the team that had made the Final Four today, if Alabama was the team that had beaten Michigan to go to the Final Four, you'd have to give Avery Johnson a little bit of credit for what Nate Oates did, because Avery Johnson would have left over a few players. Same with Juwan Howard. If Juwan Howard and Michigan had won that game, got to give credit to John Beeline, who left him, Eli Brooks, Brandon Johns, uh, Isaiah Livers, guys like that who had an impact throughout this season long. But credit to Steve Alford. And you know who else we got to give credit to? These players. Listen, man, I talked, you know, I've been hit up so much this week about this UCLA and of course the USC run and all that stuff. But like this UCLA program was at a really, really, really low spot. And I hate the cliches about West Coast basketball. Oh, no, nobody cares. And the players are so soft. And they're all SoCal kids who they're not tough. And they just want to go to the beach and surf all day. And it's like, I do think some of that is nonsense, but I think some of it is true. Like, I do think this program as a whole was a little bit soft. I don't think they had the mental toughness that they needed to have success at the highest level. And I do think McCronin brought that in. But I also think at some point, he had to get buy-in from the players on the roster. As I said a minute ago, it did not start well for UCLA and McCronin. It actually started really bad, eight and nine. And as a matter of fact, I went back and found a quote that Mick Cronin said about his team in middle January of 2020, so last year, his first season at UCLA, where he basically called out everybody on his team, and he basically said, you guys are soft, and if you're not going to do it my way, we are not going to have success, and all the players bought in from there. This is what Mick Cronin said about his team. I found this article, January 15th, 2020. So that is what? 14 months ago, pre-pandemic, all that stuff. But the, the program was struggling. They had fallen to eight and nine. They had a losing record under Steve Alford. And this is what Mick Cronin said after his team lost to Stanford to fall to eight and nine back in 2020. This is what Mick Cronin said about his team. He said, when the going gets tough, we don't have a lot of guys who get going. When the going gets tough, we have some guys who will fold. We lack toughness. And he continued, As the game goes on, our softness shows up. Our selfishness at times is evident, and it's been probably to people who have watched us all year on the offensive end, some of the shots we take and turnovers because certain guys don't want to pass the basketball. And so, like, I look back on those quotes and a couple of things. One, shout out to Mick Cronin for saying that stuff in a Twitter, social media, everything gets microanalyzed world. Because I guarantee the day after he said that, there were people, oh, Mick Cronin's too tough. Look at him. He's so old school. He can't relate to current players. But also, credit to the players because they listened to him and they bought in and they're like, you know what? This little crazy man, he might be onto something. And they completely flipped the season from there. And so I want to give credit to the players. I want to give credit to Mick Cronin. The only other thought I have on, on UCLA, shout out to Johnny Juzang, man. I mean, Johnny Juzang, it's been documented. Apparently, I am part of the problem on social media. I saw a couple people saying like, yeah, we get it. He played at Kentucky. Enough talking about it. It's like, well, I mean, it's kind of like an important part of the story. But Johnny Juzang, UCLA's leading scorer, um, he finished the game with 28. Eight points how about that 28 points in a 51 49 win for UCLA Johnny Juzang was awesome uh, he was the difference shout out to him he began his career at Kentucky but really I've gone on long enough I've talked long enough but UCLA going to the final four a great program with great history but I think they're a great story and I credit Mick Cronin for what he has done with this team All right, really quickly, I do want to get to the West Regional, uh, Gonzaga-USC, and then we'll take a quick break, come back, wrap with Baylor and Houston. Um, But I mean, I don't really know what there is to say about Gonzaga-USC at this point. Um, I don't want to overplay Gonzaga because look, they still have two more games to win. This is a program that I'm telling you right now, I know people up in Spokane, they expect to win a national championship this year. And so I don't want to play, oh my God, it's so incredible, they're 30-0. It's like, They expect to win two more games and win this national championship. And let's be honest, if they don't win the next two games, there's gonna be a lot of people, including many of you who are listening, who understandably, I'm not here to criticize you. If they don't win these next two games, there's gonna be a lot of people that say, well, how good was it? But we can only focus on the moment. I say all the time, I'm doing the show tonight. I'm not, you know, I can't, I don't have a crystal ball. I can't look into the future. I can't tell you if they're going to win the next two games. They will, of course, now play UCLA and the winner of Baylor and Houston. But what I can tell you is I'm out of stuff to really say about them. I mean, I did think it was kind of interesting. USC, an incredible story after their win over Oregon, There was an awful lot of like, man, like, I think USC can win this game. I think USC can keep it close. Like, it became a pretty popular narrative. And so for Gonzaga to do what they did on Tuesday night was, I don't want to say incredible, because again, like, I don't want to oversell who they are and what they're doing. But they were playing one of the best defensive teams in college basketball that has shut down everybody, and Gonzaga absolutely picked them apart and turned a crate you know, a-, a highly expected competitive game into a laugher. And I should also add, like, it was a weird game off the jump, right? Two minutes in, Joel Ayayi, my boy, Joel ayayi that's my guy. I talk about him a lot. Ayai! Um, he takes an elbow to the face. He's touching his teeth. Are his teeth knocked out? Are they not? Two seconds after that, come back to play, the ref collapses. Thank goodness that gentleman is okay. I'm so happy to see that he is okay. But it was a really weird start to the game. And, you know, you're kind of sitting there watching, like, start, stop. This guy's hurt. The ref, obviously, a very scary situation, and we're glad he's okay. But, like, it didn't even phase Gonzaga. Like, that's the crazy part to me. They were playing the number four field goal percentage defense in college basketball, one of the best defensive teams in this sport And turn it into a joke. Finished with 40, they were up 49-30 at halftime. Keep in mind, USC, for the record, they held in the second round of the NCAA tournament, they held Kansas to 51 total points, okay? 51 total points. Gonzaga had 49 at halftime. The second half basically turned into a layup line until they're putting in their backups just to get extra reps. And, like, I don't know what else there is to say about this team at this point. You know, all I'll really add from from Tuesday's game, first of all, credit USC. I've talked about them a ton. What they did this season was awesome. They were a really good team. They deserved the credit that they got late in the season. But they ran into a better team on Tuesday night. And as far as Gonzaga, what I will say is, first of all, I will give them credit because of the fact that, as I've told you many times on this show, it is national championship or bust in Spokane. Mark's few won't say it. His coaching staff won't say it. His players won't say it. But they came into this season expecting to win a national championship. They came into this season um, you know, doing all the things needed to take care of COVID protocol because they knew they had a chance to do something really special. And so to start the season the way they did, by beating Kansas on the opening day of the season, by beating Auburn, by beating Iowa, by beating Virginia, by beating West Virginia. Every single game, the pressure mounting. And again, I'm not saying they're going to go undefeated. But what I am saying is every single game, the pressure mounts. And every single game, because they don't play in a power conference, they not only have to win, but they have to win convincingly, dominatingly, which is not even a word, but I just made it up. And on top of that, they have to win in style to continue to kind of quiet the haters. And even that's not gonna be enough. And so when I look at what they've done this year, I think it's incredible, and I think we should celebrate the fact that they got to 30-0 and this season, 29 wins by double figures. But I think we should just celebrate it. Like, let's just, for the next you know 72 hours just enjoy this Gonzaga team they are a joy to watch they play basketball the right way they're very fundamentally sound i mean bounce passes ball fakes passing cutting like they're a really fun team to watch if you just genuinely enjoy basketball and i can't sit here and tell you if they're going to finish undefeated if they're going to win this national championship but right now i'm not really focused on it what i'm focused on is the fact that they went 30 and 0 undefeated into the Final Four, and Mark Few was kind of talking about it in all his post-game stuff is like, we're really happy just like where we are right now. Like, you guys want to put on, you know, like the next two games, national championship, 32-0, and what does it mean? Indiana in 76, this and that. And it's like, we're just incredibly proud to make a Final Four, and I'll talk about both Baylor and Houston in a second, but I got the sentiment that it was the same, especially for Baylor, a team that basically returned intact and was expected to get to this point of a Final Four this year, and Gonzaga did the same, and so I'm really, you know, excited for the program, I'm not gonna lie, I'm happy for him, uh, but it does feel different, and, and I'll get into this more on Friday's episode, but, like, you know, when they made the Final Four in 17, 2017, like, I was there, I was courtside in, in Phoenix, and that was a team that, like, they had a couple pros, like Zach Collins, they had a couple guys, but, like, that was, like, a really good college team that was just, like, really, really good. This is, like, Pros, this is like Corey Kisper, Jalen Suggs, like an NBA team dominating at the college level. Uh, And I'm not like saying they're an NBA team, but I'm saying is like they have real NBA players, they have real difference makers, and they just ran USC off the court. Only other thought, really quick quick shout out to Drew Timmy. I talked a little bit about him on my Twitter feed, but Drew Timmy, man, that dude with the Fu Manchu, with the big mustache, like everybody kind of like, and I'll be honest, I was one of those people too, like. I kind of made fun of him. I was kind of like, yeah, look at that guy. Like, what's that guy's deal? And he might be the most gifted player on that team in terms of actual basketball skill. He has elite court vision. Uh, court vision? I don't know. I said court vision. But he has elite court vision, great passer, great ball handler for a guy his size. Um, but I just can't say enough about Gonzaga. And again, we will get to, you know, history and what does it mean and compare them to Indiana if they win these next two games. And oh, by the way, we'll criticize them if they don't. If they don't win this national championship, again, I don't think Mark Few will say it. I do think he will consider it a disappointment, though. But we will get there when we do. As I said, we're doing the show tonight. It is Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, where most of you guys are. Like, we'll talk about all that when the time time comes. But right now, let's just appreciate Gonzaga. In a season with so many obstacles, with so many hurdles, with players getting tested every day, getting a Q-tip stuffed up their nose every single day... Where they can't go out, where they can't go party, where they can't hang with their girlfriends, when they can't, um, you know, see their family. How about that? They can't just go home on a weekend to spend time with mom and dad. The fact that they basically have not had an off night for four months now, five months now, it's pretty incredible. And we'll see what happens this weekend. All right, I think what I'm going to do now. I've talked long enough here, so what I'll do is I'll take a quick break. Uh, I will come back, and we will get into Monday night's games, which, of course, featured Baylor versus Arkansas. We'll talk about both those teams, and we'll talk about Houston. Houston redemption, Kelvin Sampson, no big deal, but we will be back after a short break. All right, let's let's work our way backwards here because – Uh, obviously we just spent a ton of time on Tuesday's games, but I do want to talk a little bit about what happened on Monday. night. I don't want to talk a lot about what happened on Monday night because we obviously got a couple great games on Monday. And so I just want to break it all down. And I just kind of want to talk about those games, kind of big picture takeaways. I don't think that we need to break down the game minute by minute, half by half, game by game. Because we kind of know what happened and we kind of know the results, but obviously on Monday night, Baylor, of course, advances to its first uh, final four, excuse me, since 1950. Houston advances to its first final four since 1984. Two incredible programs that were awesome all year. I know I'm being an elitist when I say this, but I love to see the best teams rise to the occasion in the NCAA tournament, play their best basketball, and keep advancing. That's exactly what these two teams did here as they are now both going to the final four. In terms of the games themselves, we'll start with Baylor, and again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this, because ultimately, like, and I hate to say it for the Arkansas fans that are listening, but if we're being perfectly honest, this game kind of went exactly how I told you it was going to go on Monday's show, and to be clear, I'm not saying I get all my predictions right and pat me on the back and I'm amazing, but what I did say on Monday's show was, like, very simply is, like, dude, Arkansas, you fall down by double figures in every single game that you play. You cannot do that against Baylor. And if you do that against Baylor, you are not going to win this game. And to be blunt, that's exactly what happened. Wish it hadn't. Wish it was more competitive. Wish Arkansas had been able to not fall down so early. But they fell down by five in the first, or excuse me, they fell down by double digits in the first five minutes of the game. They fall down by as many as 17 in the first half. And when you spot a team as good as Baylor, 17 points in the first half, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of the game. You're almost certainly never going to be able to come back, and that is exactly what happened. And I know, you know, an Arkansas fan wants me to break down, well, what about J.D. Notay? He fouled out. And what about Moses Moody? And what about this ref's call? The bottom line was, you were playing a really good team that's been one, two, or three in the country basically all year, and you had zero margin for error. You fall down by 17 in the first half. This is what tends to happen. With that being said, I don't want to spend too much more time on, on the, the game itself, but I do, what I do want to do instead is just talk about the big picture stuff with Baylor, because to me, what they did this season is absolutely amazing. And I know that I've talked a lot about the history of the program, where it was when Scott Drew took over the incredible rebuild that he's done, but what I don't think I've done a good enough job of is, is also talking about this specific team. Because this specific team, to me, did something that was absolutely incredible this season that I don't think we appreciate enough. And what this specific team did was this. They came into a season where it was essentially Final Four or bust. If we do not make the Final Four, we are basically a failure. I don't think a player would say that. I don't think a coach would say that. But I know for a fact that was the mentality within the program they had that mentality, final four or bust. If we don't at least get to the final four, this is considered a failure, and they got there. And I think we need to appreciate it, and I think we need to acknowledge it, and I think we need to talk about it a little bit. Because what stood out to me when I was watching Baylor celebrate on Monday night after they won that Elite Eight game was this. This particular group of Baylor Bears was not built for this 2020-2021 season. This particular Baylor group of Baylor Bears group of players was actually built for last year it was built for the 2020 season and they had in 2020 a historic season in their own right for people who don't remember last year they went 26 and 4 they did not lose a game this is still one of my favorite stats that I've ever seen They did not lose a game from November 8th until February 22nd. So go back, I'm now talking about two seasons ago. They did not lose a game from early November until late February, finished 26-4 and overall, ready to show the world that they are this elite program that has arrived on the national scene. You have to acknowledge us, and the NCAA tournament gets canceled. I remember having Scott Drew on my radio show when the tournament was canceled, and, you know, he talked about the fact that, like, yeah, man, like, this is what we have to do. It's the right thing to do. But man, does this hurt. And so when Baylor, when all these guys decided to come back, and a few of them. Uh, did have real NBA options Jared Butler they're basically their star player could have been a first round pick Macy OTeague had graduated he was a senior could have pursued professional options but when this particular team came back they were basically in a situation where anything short of the final four was going to be considered a failure because again they were built for last year and I'll take it a step further this isn't like any other program in college basketball from this perspective even Gonzaga we knew they came into this year maybe capable of winning a national championship we knew other teams would be good, but Gonzaga lost pieces off last year 's team. They lost the WCC Player of the Year off last year 's team. They lost seniors. there are new parts there are mixed you know there are different players. This Baylor team is basically the exact same team that was on the court together last year and all came back this year and so if, if they got to this point and did not make a final four again i don 't think Scott drew would admit it i don 't think Jared Butler would admit it. But it would have been considered a disappointment. It would have been considered a failure because they believed they were good enough to make a Final Four and win a national championship last year and were robbed of the opportunity. And so when I watched them on the court celebrating, I realized what they did is so incredible. You know what it kind of reminded me of in the old school kind of college hoops junkies will remember this? I remember watching the 2006-2007 Florida Gators. If you remember, the year before, they won the national championship with Joe Kim Noah, Al Horford, Corey Brewer, And they decide they win the national championship a year ahead of schedule and they decide, you know what, screw it, let's all come back. And that'll probably never happen again in college basketball where you have three first round caliber players that all decide to come back for a second year. But the second that Florida decided to come back the following season, it was national championship or bust. And I still remember. The year that they won the second national championship, they beat Ohio State and Greg Oden. I was actually in New York City, a uh, friend's 21st birthday party, and we're watching the game in a hotel getting ready to go out on a Monday night. I don't know what kind of business we got into on a Monday night, but that's neither here nor there. But you know, I remember watching in the hotel and being like, I cannot believe they did this. I cannot believe that they had the pressure all year of having to win a national championship. This is now the Florida Gators that I'm talking about. And they actually did it. And that was the exact same vibe that I got from Baylor. And so I think we have to appreciate Baylor. I think we have to respect Baylor because of the fact that this particular group of guys believed that they had this chance last year. It got taken from them and they came back and did it in 2021. Beyond that, a few other takeaways. One, I do think we do have to talk a little bit about Scott True. The incredible job that he has done with this program, and I've beaten it like a drum over these last few uh, months, I don't want to spend too much time talking about it, but what he has done with this program is absolutely incredible. This is a guy, I know I've talked about it, for those of you who have heard this rant, forgive me, but for those of you that are new to the show, and we've gotten a lot of new uh, listeners this March, it's worth revisiting where Baylor was when Scott Drew took over. Scott Drew took over, arguably, the worst scandal. I don't even think it's arguable. The worst scandal in the history of college sports. We're going to talk about Kelvin Sampson in a second, okay? Kelvin Sampson got busted for making too many phone calls. You know what Baylor was busted by? And I, I can't believe I'm saying this, and I'm not being facetious or funny. Baylor had a player on their roster. For people who do not remember, this happened. You can look it up. Go on Google. Baylor had a player on their roster kill another player. Murder another player. That player is now in prison for the rest of his life, and on top of that, you had the coaching staff trying to cover everything up, and so when Scott Drew got there, you're dealing with a program where there's this scandal, this tragedy. Most of the players that were actually in the program had left at this point. You're dealing with years of NCAA sanctions, and Scott Drew really was, for lack of a better term, the only one that wanted this job. And it wasn't, you know, and by the way, I should mention, it's not like this is Kansas or, uh, you know, Carolina where, yeah, you know, you're in the middle of a scandal, but like you can come back from it. And I'm not trying to compare scandals or anything like that, but like, you know, there are certain programs that like they were really good before and you might have a scandal for a year or two, but you're going to be really good after. Baylor had never even been good before Scott Drew got there. So he takes over one of the worst programs in Division I major college basketball. He then has the worst scandal in the history of college sports, and he starts building this thing from scratch. And it took until year five to make the NCAA tournament. And they made an Elite Eight in 2010, where they lost to Duke. And it took them, uh, you know, they got back to the Elite Eight in 2012 against Kentucky, where they lost to Kentucky that eventually won the national championship. But I bring it up because that was nine years ago. And it took nine years of ups, downs, peaks, valleys to get to this point. And it took 15, 18, whatever it is, years for Scott Drew to get to this point. And so I do not think that we should undersell what Scott Drew has done. This was one of the biggest scandals in the history of college sports. As I said back in December, I think it was on a December show. I'll tell you this. I think this is the greatest rebuild in the history of sports considering where Baylor was when he got there and, frankly, who Baylor was before he got there in general. So I just want to acknowledge Scott Drew in this one as well. Finally, a couple more thoughts on on Baylor and Arkansas. You know, one with Baylor, how about Davion Mitchell? That was the only other major takeaway I had. Davion Mitchell for basically... Most of this season was seen as the running mate to Jared Butler. Jared Butler was a Big 12 all-first team member. And all of a sudden, this NCAA tournament comes, and Davion Mitchell, number 45 for Baylor, is just a grown man taking over games late, getting big buckets, getting to the rim. Arkansas had absolutely no answers for him. And I'll just say this, you know, Davion Mitchell really in a lot of ways reminds me what I talk about all the time with college basketball, which is that, um, you know, we always – I always hear people in the media, and you guys know I'm not like this, but we always hear people in the media, oh, my goodness, like, you know, uh, whatever, like, these players are so exploited and their life is so tough and all this and all that. Well, isn't Davion Mitchell the perfect example of everything that is great about college sports? Davion Mitchell hasn't been exploited. If anything, he has exploited the system. This was a guy that transferred in from Auburn. He sat out the 2018-2019 season. Last year, he was a really good player, maybe like third-team all Big 12, and then this year, he worked his butt off put himself in a position to probably be like a late first round, early second round pick. And now he's in the NCAA tournament blowing up. And I'm reading articles saying that Davion Mitchell is going to be a lottery pick. And so when I look at Davion Mitchell, I think he is the perfect example of what I always say. Everybody talks about how terrible college sports are. And these players they are so exploited and life is so unfair. If you're smart and you know how to use the system, you can use the system to your advantage. And I think Davion Mitchell is. Finally, I'll just wrap with Arkansas. Um, talked a lot about them on this program this year obviously had coach mus on a ton uh in the earliest part of the season and what i'll say is i know it's tough you know now whatever 72 hour you know 36 hours after you lose in the in the, in the elite 8 I do think it's important to note how far this program has come. I mean, you know, it was two, two and a half years ago where Mike Anderson gets fired. You don't know who the next head coach is going to be. Ironically, there was a push for Kelvin Sampson. He stays at Houston. You don't know where you're going to go. And for Eric Musselman to get this program to the Sweet 16 for the first time since 1996 and then to the Elite Eight for the first time since 1995, and he does it in year two I think it's an incredible thing to build off of. And what was crazy to me was I, I was talking to an Arkansas fan about this on, you know, whatever it was, you know, Monday night, Tuesday night, whatever it is. I remember being on this show talking about the idea, even in early February, of like, if Arkansas just wins the, the games they're supposed to, they'll make the NCAA tournament. And there was a point not that long ago where it was like, we think Arkansas's a tournament team, but we're not really totally positive. So, like, let's see how the rest of this season goes. And they end up going from like sort of an NCAA tournament team to, oh, by the way, uh, they are a juggernaut. They finish second in the SEC, obviously get to the SEC uh, semifinals at the SEC tournament, and just have an incredible run in Indianapolis for this NCAA tournament. And so I don't want to spend too much more time on it, but just very simply, I would say You know, incredible run for Arkansas, and I'm telling you, as long as Eric Musselman is there, um, you know, they are going to be in really good shape. I would also add, you know, I follow this transfer portal stuff, which we'll talk about here in a minute with Kellen Grady committing to Kentucky and some other big news, but I follow this transfer portal stuff about as closely as anybody does, and I'm just telling you, man, like, They're going to clean up in the transfer portal like Kentucky is, like Alabama is, like Gonzaga is. This thing ain't slowing down anytime soon for Arkansas as long as Eric Musselman is there. I don't think this will be the last time or anything close to it that they get to the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight. And maybe on the verge of a Final Four. But with that said, let's switch gears. Because I do want to talk about the final, uh, you know, the, the, the fourth Elite Eight game of this tournament, which of course was actually, um, you know, which was actually the first game that was played, and that was Houston and Oregon State. Uh, it's another one that happened 72 hours ago. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it. Uh, I don't want to, I take that back. When when I say I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, that's disrespectful to you guys as an audience, disrespectful to the teams that played the games. When I say I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, what I mean is I don't want to spend a ton of time talking X's and O's when Oregon did, Oregon state did this, this. It's like, no, I want to talk about the big picture stuff in terms of the game that itself, you know, let me just say, I mean, another one, it kind of went how we expected it to. Uh, You know, Houston is just this big, tough, physical, bruising team. They were a team that I picked to go to the Final Four out of this region. And while Oregon State is really good, um, they hadn't faced a team like them in this NCAA tournament. Loyola was really fundamentally sound, but they weren't elite athletically. And so you kind of take that Loyola-Chicago kind of fundamental to it. You put, you know, better players and better athletes in Houston uniforms, and it's going to be an uphill battle. Oregon State has not been a great rebounding team, specifically defensively all season. Houston is the best offensive rebounding team in college basketball, and this is the result that you get. And so I'll tell you, I never bought this notion that just because Houston plays in a, a not great conference or you know they, they don't play the most aesthetically pleasing style that they were a bad team. I thought they were awesome all year. And like I said, when the bracket came out, I picked them to go to the Final Four. And when I look at the big picture of Houston, that's the first thing that stands out. Monday night was the first time that I saw people start to appreciate who Houston is, what they do, and what they're about. And it really goes back to what I was saying a minute ago with Davion Mitchell is that, uh, you know, I, we, we spend so much time talking about what's wrong with college basketball and, and all this stuff. And like when it comes to Houston, they are a team that I think gets a lot of unfair scorn, right? We, we hear about the style of play in college basketball and the pace and the physicality, and there's too many fouls, and like, I do think Houston at times can be a metaphor for that, right? They don't play fast. They don't score a lot of points. They score more than you give them credit for. But if they can win a game 64-60, to they're happy doing that, and they're happy hanging their hat on the defensive end. And I think they've gotten a lot of national criticism for it. But when I watch them, I sit there and say, like, you know what? I don't want to say they're, like, fun to watch. Like, I don't want to say, like, I'm rearranging my schedule to watch them play Tulane on a Tuesday night. But they do, like, if you appreciate good basketball, they really are fun to watch. And I think I got a lot of that from you guys as an audience, talked to other people in the media that was like, man, you know, I had never really been on this Houston thing, but I watched them really closely on uh, Monday night, and they're really, like, they're kind of a fun team to watch. And again, it's not the prettiest, it's not 100 points, it's not three-point shooting, But man, they are so fundamentally sound, they are so well prepared, they are so, uh, you know, fundamental is not the right word, but they are so schematically sound in terms of being able to just just be in the right place, the right position, make the right play, and they're so physical. They're just like an old school, physical, street yard, playground kind of team that's like, yeah, we're going to throw elbows, yeah, you're going to throw elbows back at us. No blood, no foul, get up, let's keep playing. And so I do think it was, it was kind of cool to see people acknowledge like, okay, I, I was kind of like, oh, they're boring and they, they're too physical, whatever. I had a lot of people tell me on Monday night like, man, I, I actually really enjoyed watching them because they just get really after it defensively. And I'm a coach of my, my daughter's you know uh, a 13-year-old team, or I'm, I coach my son, or I coach high school, or I coach this, or I coach that. And I really appreciate how hard they play. On top of that, I think the other story with Houston is Kelvin Sampson. And look, let me say a couple things on Kelvin Sampson. One, I think the the rebuild that he has done at Houston is one of the most incredible things that I have ever seen. Scott Drew's right up there, by the way. But you think about Houston, national power in the 60s, national power in the 70s, three straight Final Fours in 82, 83, 84. Not only had they not been back to a Final Four since 1984, they had not, they had not won an NCAA tournament game since 1984 before Kelvin Sampson gets there. And in year whatever it was, in the 2018 NCAA tournament, they're basically a buzzer beater from Michigan away from advancing to the Sweet 16, which would have been their first Sweet 16 since 84. In 2019, they do get to the Sweet 16, but Tyler Hero hits a dagger and kills them. Otherwise, they would have gone to the Elite Eight. And so in 2020, this six, seven, eight-year rebuild to get to the Final Four at a school that had not been to a Final Four since 1984, had not won a tournament game since 1984, is one of the greatest rebuilding jobs I've ever seen. And Kelvin Sampson, in my mind, is one of the five best coaches in college. I don't even think it's a debate. And of course, when I say that, of course, when I talk about Kelvin Sampson, anytime I say anything positive, you know what happens. Yeah, but he's a cheater. I can't like him. I can't root for him because he's a cheater. And like by definition, yes, you are right. He did get caught cheating. For people who do not remember, um, he had two separate instances where he made too many phone calls to recruits uh, while he was at both Oklahoma and Indiana. The second time he got caught, he was punished and given a five-year NCAA show cause, which meant that he is not allowed, he was not allowed at the time to coach major college basketball. And so yes, by technical definition, he did cheat. By technical definition, he did break the rules. And by technical definition, he should be punished for it. My stance on all this stuff is very simple. I am, I am always, I'm, I'm not saying I'm the most perfect law-abiding citizen. I'm not saying that I've never gone, you know, 58 on the highway when the speed limit is 55. But what I always say is, I might think a rule is dumb. I might think that if I go 58 in a 55 on the highway, that it's stupid if I get pulled over. But it's t- I still broke the rule, and I still have to be held accountable for it. And so I hold my sports figures to the same thing, is that if you break the rules, you have to be punished for it. But once you do the punishment, you should also be able to live your life, right? And like, this is my whole problem with like cancel culture and everything that we're dealing with now. And I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole. But it's like, you know, if somebody makes a mistake, they should still be allowed to like live their lives and be employed, you know? Um, I use this example all the time. But like, you know, my mom who listens to this show, shout out mom, like she is the biggest animal advocate in the world. And when Michael Vick was busted for dog fighting, like my mom thinks that Michael Vick should never be able to hold a job again. And I'm sorry, mom, I love you. Thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. But my personal opinion is Michael Vick screwed up. He served his prison time. He should be allowed to continue with his life. Uh, and it's the same with Kelvin Sampson. He broke the rules. He got punished five-year show cause he still should be allowed like you can't just stick him in a basement and never allow him to earn a living again and so one I'm happy to see kind of this rebuild this you know this rebranding that he has come under at Houston but on top of that like can we call a spade a spade here if you are going to be the person on Twitter that's complaining to me well yeah but he's a cheater well can we also acknowledge that like what he did relative to what is going on now in college sports really isn't that bad like, first of all, he broke a rule that doesn't even exist anymore, which is making too many phone calls. You can now make unlimited phone calls at this juncture in the NCAA rulebook. Now, nineteen, seven, you know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen-year-old kids aren't going to pick up your calls, but you can make as many calls as you want. So, the rule that he broke no longer exists. And on top of that, can we be honest? We got coaches on wiretaps talking about forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars to to families, to players. We got a, a coach, uh, you know, accused of paying $40,000 to get grades changed at a high school. We got a, you know, huge-ass offer to Javante Smart. I mean, we got real stuff going on. Oh, by the way, you go back a few years. We got Miami, uh, University of Miami, Nevin Shapiro, the guy that was basically funneling money into the Miami football program. He had he was paying for abortions for people. Like, like, what's worse, that or making too many phone calls? So enough with the Kelvin Sampson stuff. Enough with he's this terrible human being. I don't think he's a terrible human being. I do think he broke the rules, he had to be punished, he served his time, and I'll just say I'm super happy for him, I'm super happy for the program, and listen, I'll tell you this, you could see the emotion when he made that Final Four. On the sideline, his son, who is the coach-in-waiting at Houston, bawling his eyes out with his son, you could tell how much this meant to him, how much it meant to his family, and how much it meant to Houston basketball. All right, so I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and I'll be honest, like, like I did kind of come into this episode, kind of planning on talking transfer portal stuff. Uh, Kellen Grady, one of, I think, the best players in the transfer portal did commit to Kentucky this week. But what I do think I'll do, I will wait until Friday's episode and there will be a Friday episode. uh, And I'll talk some transfer portal stuff because I don't know how much there's going to be to talk about the final four games. But to me, the transfer portal stuff is ramping up and you guys, uh, you know, we have a diverse fan base, you know, all sorts of fans from all different fan bases that listen to this show and I understand that for the vast majority of fans, your team, their season is over and now you're focused on the off season, you're focused on transfer stuff and so I promise you on Friday's episode, it will be a Friday episode again, I will talk about All the different transfer stuff, including Kellen Grady committing to Kentucky, including any news that we have after that. And of course, whatever happens in the portal between now and when I record on Thursday night. Uh, because this portal is changing by the day. Um, you know, even just since I recorded last week, Christian Lander, former five star player uh, from Indiana, has entered the transfer portal. Rocket Watts, who I think is really good from Michigan State, has entered the transfer portal. Kadari uh, Richmond from Syracuse has entered the transfer portal. And I should mention, too, if you do want to hear me talk about Kellen Grady, I did do a segment for it on my YouTube page. Go find me on YouTube. Uh, But we will talk Kellen Grady on the next episode. We will talk transfer portal stuff on the next episode. But we talked enough Elite Eight for tonight. An hour's worth of stuff uh, is more than enough. And so, with that said, let's get out of here. Before we do, I want to remind you please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes, you can do it on the podcast addict app. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. But that is all for today's show i'm gonna get out of here shout out to torrent craig shout out to rachel who hates my voice final four preview plus transfer stuff on friday's episode until then i want you guys to have a great week uh stay healthy stay happy uh we'll talk we'll talk friday party people okay i'll be back soon it is ryan here and i have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper